I love that we have red solo cups here. You never, never know what's in them, I'm sure. The news cycle right now is definitely dominated by stories about Nelson Mandela, and I'm glad to hear already uh, references to his life and to um, just remembering the significant part he has played in our world. Uh, but, of course, his death came on Friday at the age of 95, and this caught attention all around the world. It's uh, amazing how fast the news spread. Even though his death was not unexpected, his loss was immediately felt in South Africa. No one else had come along for them, like Mandela. And as we think about the significance of the moral authority and the strength that he provided, there are those who are wondering how that will continue in the days ahead. He who was uh, raised in injustice and poverty and the racism of South Africa's powers that be, he never ceased speaking out and working for the liberation of his people. He, the Lion of Africa, after 27 years of imprisonment, courageously provided them with that liberation. And this week and for years to come, reporters and historians will struggle to try to capture uh, the measure of his life in words and with various accounts. It is just so grand. The news of his death came as I was working on my sermon, trying to enter the scene in our Matthew text for today, the, the scene of John the Baptist. I couldn't help but think of how Mandela was a kind of John the Baptist. It just really came together for me as I was watching some of the news reports. Here, like John, was a voice crying out in the wilderness, speaking out boldly and courageously. Here was a man speaking truth to power, even if it meant being carried away to a prison cell. I don't know if Mandela was a student of John the Baptist, but I'm, I'm sure that he fits the role of one called to prepare the way of the Lord in the desert, doing so with the peace and the radical forgiveness of God's kingdom. What he did is what we are all to do. We are to prepare the way of the Lord in our world today. This was certainly John the Baptist's role. And a look through the history of Israel in the Bible reveals the obvious pattern of God's people continually getting off course with God's way for them and the world. And we take great comfort in the times that they were sidetracked and went off and did their own thing because we know we do the same thing too. We can identify with their sins and with their distractions and with their problems. And we see how often and easily they veer off course and how they lose their way. God leads them out of slavery in Egypt and puts them on a road to a land of promise. But they take a 40-year detour of wandering in the desert before getting there. When they do get there and find that it does indeed have promise, that it is flowing with milk and honey, they quickly forgot why they were there and what it was that they were supposed to be doing there. The blessings became distractions, and the hearts once open and tender to God their deliverer suddenly became hard and closed. 
the blessings they had in their life, they thought they had provided for themselves. And they looked out with great ego and great pride at the nations around them and looked down on their noses, down their noses at the other people. They would ultimately wander away from God's destination for them, distracted by the things of other nations. They would be distracted and captivated by their gods and then captured by their rulers and exiled to go to Babylon. They would spend 59 years away from where they were supposed to be. This idea of being in God's presence and being whole is the idea of peace that we celebrate here today as we light the candle. It is the shalom of God. It is a sense of wholeness and fullness of existing in a right relationship with God. Time after time, through the years and up until the time when Jesus arrived, they would head in the opposite direction of God's shalom. John the Baptist was acutely aware that his people were headed in the wrong direction. He was so aware of it that he was willing to do whatever God needed him to do to get them to turn around. And I'm not sure if he knew that a surrender to God would involve maintaining a diet of locusts and wild honey, or wearing an outfit made of camel's hair. And don't you know, he just stunk as he was out there in that camel's hair. But he was a man on a mission to prepare the path and the people on it, to be on mission for God, to uh, participate in God's way in the world. This way for the one God had sent to be the way, the truth, and the life. So fueled by locusts, honey, fire, and brimstone, John called on everyone to recognize that they were headed in the wrong way. He was the typical revival preacher, banging his fist and yelling and proclaiming and trying to get the attention of people who were drifting far away from God. Repent! He said, for the kingdom of God has come near. In other words, if you want to get to peace with God, you've got to turn around. As Eugene Peterson puts it in his message translation, change your ways. God's kingdom is here. Well, however he said it, his point was well taken. Well, his point was not so well taken by the people John just referred to as a brood of vipers. I mean, how would you have liked it if I had called you a brood of vipers as you came in today? And I'm not saying I won't ever do it, but how would you like it if I did? Well, he didn't care. The truth was the truth. The preparation for God's arrival in the world was the same for everyone, even for those who understood themselves as God's chosen people, and of a certain lineage. Everyone needed to prepare themselves. Everyone needed to change their ways. The force of his rhetoric and the sound of his voice went up a notch when he saw the religious leaders coming his way. And as it is described for us by Matthew, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, these two very important big religious groups, within John's own religion, are coming out his way. He knows how legalistic they are. He knows what kind of vipers they are. And so he suspected their visit was not one out of genuine conviction over their sins. 
He knew they didn't believe they were on the wrong path to God, even though their lives were void of any evidence that they were headed in God's direction. To him and to God, they were a brood of vipers. They were a tree without any fruit. And what they were doing was really not the problem. It's what they were not doing. They were not doing the most important thing that God had given them to do as a people. To shine His light for the world to see. By ignoring God's directions for them, they were heading down the wrong road. They were heading to a road to nowhere. I read an article this past week from the Huntington Post about a woman who got lost driving. Now, this was news because it rarely happens, right? It's men who usually get lost and are never willing to admit it. Women are wise enough to stop and ask for directions, right? The reason that this woman was lost was not because she didn't stop, but because she was following a faulty GPS system. And uh, as the article noted, in January of 2013, Sabine Moreau, a 67-year-old Belgian woman, was driving to pick up a friend in Brussels, about 90 miles from her home. But based on the faulty directions that she got from her GPS, she drove all the way to Croatia, nearly... (laughs) Nearly 1,000 miles away. The journey took the woman across five international borders. She stopped several times to get gas and take naps, but she kept pressing onward until she got to Zagreb, the capital of Croatia. After a few days, her son got worried and called the police. What a great son. Who located Sabine by following her bank statements. She told a Belgian reporter, I was distracted, so I kept going. I saw all kinds of signs, first in French, then in German, and finally in Croatian. But I continued driving because I was distracted. When I passed Zagreb, I told myself I should turn around. (laughs) I should turn around. That's the message that we need to be sure that we are hearing this morning on this second Sunday of Advent. If we are ever going to experience the peace of God, if we are ever going to arrive at this shalom of God, then we need to make sure that changes in our lives are happening. The first part of preparing the way of the Lord is preparing it within ourselves. Maybe the first thing you and I need to change about our lives is our thinking that what matters most to God is our religious belief or our heritage. Like the religious leaders John criticized for depending on their ethnicity, their knowledge, their belief to please God, we can so easily fall into that same kind of thinking that what matters most to God is right belief, not right action. As John said, we, became, we become a tree without fruit when we think in that way. Could it be that we are like beautiful trees that God has created, growing up in the rich soil of our faith, taking in nutrients, growing impressive limbs, and yet bearing no fruit at all? This seems to be the message that Pope Francis keeps sharing. And I love it. I love what he continues to say and how 
It unsettles people all over the world. Not just the Rush Limbaugh's who accuse him of Marxism, but people all around the globe who are not necessarily following the teachings and the ways of Christ. But he keeps saying all of these things. That the church needs to turn from obsession about doctrinal truth and to get busy doing the work of Jesus. There was also an article this past week about uh, how he, it's been discovered that he is going out in the late of night with uh, other, uh, with bishops and some priests, just uh, basically in disguise, but he is out feeding the homeless and taking care of people and praying for healing and doing all kinds of things in the streets of cities around Rome. It's not just about right belief, it's right action. It is likely, or is it likely, that we are holding up God's peace from fully arriving in our lives and in our world because we are missing the point of our faith. So focused on ourselves that we forget that we are here to produce fruit. Isn't that likely? Isn't it something that we see all around us? Well, if so, let's turn around. Making a U-turn toward God is not just about changing our thinking. It is changing our behavior. And this is a part of repentance that we would rather not hear. If we have to hear it, why not just hear it in the season of Lent? When we can mark our heads with ashes and give up all of our bad habits until Easter morning. By the way, some of you have said, I'll give it up until uh, Good Friday. I've noticed there are a lot of people who make that change you know, you, you go back to your old ways. You can't even wait till Easter. Um, but you're better than me because I tend not to give up anything. Do we really need to change some things in this season of indulgence and consumerism? I mean, is this really the best time of year to go about making changes in our lives? Yes. But only if we want to be involved with what God is bringing into the world. If not, no worries until God inspects your tree. If you do want to be involved, then take a look this week at whatever is in your life that is keeping you from living fully at peace with God. Take some time to reflect on what sidetracks you from living fully for God. We are all distracted by things that promise to make us whole and convince us that we can't live without. Yes, we say to ourselves, I know God's direction to real life, but I think my way will get me there too. We may even convince ourselves that we can have it both ways, that we can go God's direction and we can go in ours at the same time. Forgetting the reality that Jesus expressed that we can't serve both God and mammon. And so we careen on down the road to nowhere. Churches can shoot UEs too, can't they? Just as we need to make changes to our behavior as individuals, so the church at large could do some things differently. What needs to change to get our focus off ourselves and onto the work of preparation for God's arrival could be a very long list. What do we need to do differently in order to make crooked paths straight? There are still plenty of crooked paths in our world that need our attention 
As we see the cycles of poverty, causes of homelessness, lingering effects of war, alarming statistics of school dropouts, consequences of greed, violence of hatred, and the stains of injustice. These crooked paths surround churches around the world, but they also run right here in our community. Volunteers of America has been posting some jarring facts on social media this past month. And I encourage you to look at their Facebook page to see some of these that are matching with some of the national commercials that are much the same. Nearly 30,000 children in Shreveport, Bossier live in poverty. Just let that sink in for a moment. Nearly 30,000 children are living in poverty right here in our community. On any given night, there are 100 veterans homeless in Shreveport. And female senior citizens are three times more likely to live in poverty than men many of whom are living right here in the Highland neighborhood. As we sometimes say in our public confession, we ask for forgiveness for what we have done and for what we have not done. Perhaps our biggest sin is the work of preparation for God's kingdom that we haven't done. Well, the good news here today is that we can turn around. And that's the good news at all times. We can always turn around. God always gives us a chance to have a do-over. As a locust-eating man in the wilderness has proclaimed so boldly, change is up to us. Change for ourselves and change for our world. Let us pray. Our Father, we come to you today with hearts that are in recognition that we have changes to make. And so we ask for your help. We ask.